0: Started For those of you who are in the Norwich area, Century Communications has shifted our time. We are now on at 9 p.m. on Sunday night, so you can get your basic doctrine at 9 o'clock on Sunday on uh, Century Cable in the Norwich area. I think we're still on Monday night at 6 o'clock on Comcast and Thursday night at 9.30 in, um, on Eastern. So you can watch that, and I appreciate it when I know that some people are just checking those other areas so that I know that everything's running smoothly and that we are on the air. Before we get started in God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your Word now and to understand the things that are here as we study the life of Christ and all that he exemplified for us and what he taught us. Father, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we know that the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to the truth of your word, helps us to understand these things clearly and to apply them in our lives and pray that we would be responsive. And now, Father, help us to understand these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. When I was in Washington, D.C. this last week, I was informed that there was a man from the Midwest who has been listening to tapes. And he said, well, it's been a year, he's gotten to chapter 6, how long is it going to take to go through the whole of the gospel? We're not exactly speeding our way through, but there's a tremendous amount of doctrine here and a lot to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you have chapters that are 70 verses long, you just can't stop and go through every single word. But there's a lot here, and there's a lot that we have to go over, so it's exciting. I hope you're enjoying the study as much as I am. We come to John 7, 1, and we read, And after these things, for some reason I seem to be scraping a lot up here, fix the microphone. Okay. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, where he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now obviously there is a major transition between the end of the last chapter, which also took place in Galilee, and the events in chapter 7. So let's take a minute and just review where we have come in our study of the Gospel of John. The first two chapters from John chapter 1 down through 2.11 is the introduction of the Word of God, the Logos of God, to Israel. There we are introduced to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His eternality and His deity in the first part of the chapter, first part of chapter 1. And then we went through four days In the life of John the Baptist, we covered basically a week, the first four days focused on John the Baptist and his announcement of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a major theme in the gospel. Remember, John wrote this gospel for one purpose, one primary purpose. He accomplishes many secondary purposes, but his primary purpose is to give people the information they need in order to get to heaven. He said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The point that John is making over and over again is to bring together the evidence that establishes his thesis that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed who he claimed to be, the Messiah promised from the Old Testament, and that he is the one who goes to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. So in the first chapter of John, he introduces Jesus as the eternal logos of God because only as God could he be perfect and go to the cross and die as our substitute. Only as man, perfect humanity, true humanity, sinless humanity, could he die as our substitute. But in his deity, his work has infinite value and so it can establish an atonement that has infinite value. Application and is capable of saving everybody under the category of unlimited atonement. In the second chapter of John, we see the first sign take place, which is the sign at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee when he turns the water into wine. And then starting in chapter 2, verse 12, down through the end of chapter 3, we went through the first Jerusalem trip when he went to the, to the temple and he cast out the money changers and he came into conflict with the religious leaders. And then he, after that he had a personal conversation with Nicodemus. We saw the rise of animosity between the religious leaders and Jesus. And this eventually will lead to his crucifixion. The charge at his crucifixion is that it goes all the way back to events in that second chapter that he claimed to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. So they had a long memory for what he said on that occasion. He, then in chapter 4, we saw him leave Judea, travel into Samaria, and there he explained the gospel to the woman at the well, and through her witness, many in Samaria came to uh, believe Jesus Christ was the, their Savior. Then in chapter 5, we saw the second Jerusalem trip. The controversy intensified. There was the healing of the cripple at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath which produced the Son of God discourse in that chapter. Then we came to chapter 6. We saw Jesus return to Galilee, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, which precipitated the bread of life discourse. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus is at his, the height of his popularity during the three years of, the, uh, of his public ministry. He's at the height of popularity, and that at the end of the chapter, the only ones who are left are the disciples. What caused everybody to leave? He taught some doctrine. Doctrine causes people to leave. If you want a large crowd, then you just teach superficial little spiritual truths that everybody will like. But if you really teach the truth and explain the details of Scripture, many people will leave because they just don't want to listen. They're happy with their lives. They're set in their autonomous ways, and they just don't want to be challenged by the truth of God's Word. There's a major shift that takes place between chapter 6 and chapter 7. We see this in every other gospel, that there is a point about halfway through the gospel when Jesus, finally, the controversy between Jesus and the leaders and the people comes to a head. There is a, uh, a rejection of him and there is a turning point. No longer does he present himself publicly as the Messiah but his ministry becomes more and more private to the disciples in preparing them for the church age. So we see this transition take place, and in chapter 7, Jesus will do some pretty interesting things, and and there will be a tremendous uh, conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. Now, I want you to notice that there's been a flow according to the way John has organized the gospel. First, we see him in Jerusalem at the temple. Then he's out of Jerusalem in the countryside. Then he's back in Jerusalem. Then he's out of Jerusalem. So where do we expect to find him now in chapter 7? He's going to be back in Jerusalem. John is going to show us in this chapter how Jesus' movement fizzled out. The dynamics of the negative volition in Judea. And the hostility of Jerusalem the religious leadership. And in the midst of this, we're going to see that not only was there negative volition among the people, but we will see the negative volition among Jesus' own family. The first verse begins after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Verses 1 and 2 describe the setting for the next couple of chapters. After these things, Jesus was walking. This is the... Uh, imperfect, active indicative of peripeteo, and all of the verbs in this verse are imperfect tense. Now the imperfect tense is a past tense and it refers to continuous action in past time. So we could translate it, after these things, Jesus was continually walking, this is his Public ministry in Galilee. John never covers much of the Galilean ministry of the Lord. He focuses a lot on what takes place in Jerusalem and the conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's up to the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to cover the details of what takes place in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And this is just bypassed here by John. After these things, Jesus was continually walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking, were continually seeking, imperfect tense, were continually seeking to fulfill the purpose of killing him. They have already decided back, that happened, remember, back in chapter 5, after the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, that they determined that they needed to remove him from the scene, and they had already made the decision that he needed to be killed. So they're constantly plotting against him. Now the principle here that we should derive from this is that Jesus took various common sense precautions to protect his life. He does not go in harm's way until it is time to go in harm's way. He doesn't flaunt his position in front of the Jewish leaders down in Judea. He doesn't directly challenge them. He knows that that. It will eventually come to a head, but in the meantime, he has some things he has to accomplish and some doctrine he has to teach. So he takes evasive action. This doesn't mean he's a coward. It means he's wise. He's not evading it altogether, but he will eventually come into conflict. And we saw in the earlier hour, the passage in Luke 22, 35, where Jesus armed his disciples prior to going to the cross so that they would make sure that the right people arrested him. Jesus was not going to let just anybody arrest him because if a vigilante crowd got a hold of him and they killed him in a, in, in a way other than the cross, then it would not achieve his purpose and plan and, and God's, God's plan for his life. Now after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, John is not using the term Jews in an anti-Semitic way, for, of course, John himself is Jewish. John uses this term, the Jews, as we have seen in the last chapter, to refer to the Jewish leaders who are hostile to Jesus, who have rejected his claims to be the Messiah. So, the term the Jews does not refer to every Jew in Judea, but is a technical term for the Jewish leadership. And at this time, Jesus is facing four specific problems. First of all, in the last chapter, he experienced a tremendous cataclysmic plummet in popularity from followers that numbered between twelve and 15,000 out on the hillside where they were fed miraculously, called the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 refers to the males that were there. Secondly, his many of his own disciples, many of his own students, not the twelve, but many of the other followers, these are believers, although the vast majority of that crowd were unbelievers, there were many believers there. They're just called disciples, learners, students, pupils. That's the meaning of mathetes. Many of his own pupils defected in mass at this time as a result of his teaching they just didn't want to listen to all that he had to say it was too difficult for them it was too controversial it was too hard to understand and they really weren't concerned about renovating their thinking according to divine viewpoint if they had a messiah that would give them a political uh, emancipation from rome that was great but if he's going to start teaching us all of these things and we have to accept him and he's going to become the source of our spiritual nourishment well That's asking too much, so they defected. The third problem is one of the twelve in the inner circle is not even a believer. He is going to be a traitor. And then the fourth problem is that the leadership in Judea, the religious leadership, has determined to remove him from the scene. So Jesus is experiencing rejection at a massive scale. Now, most of us, if we went through a period of rejection like this, we would probably sit at home and just watch TV all day or cave into depression or go out and call the doctor up and get some sort of medication so that we could just sit back and enjoy life no matter what was happening. But Jesus is going to solve the problems of rejection through the use of the stress busters. Now, eight of the ten were available to Jesus. He didn't have to use the first one, which is confession, because he was impeccable. And he didn't have to use the last one, occupation with Christ, because that did not apply to him. But he used all of the others in order to handle the problem of rejection. Now the next verse gives us the time frame. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths was at hand. Now this comes about in what we would call December, the early early weeks of December. So this is approximately 8 months after the events in John chapter 6. We were told at the beginning of John notice his style. He starts the chapter off giving us a little setting and background, and then there's a short narrative explaining some events, and then Jesus begins to teach to explain the significance of those events. We saw that same style in John 5. We see it again in John 6. And we're going to see it again in John 7. So here he tells us that it's at the time of the Feast of the Jews, which is called the Feast of Booths. It's interesting how John organizes the gospel around the Jewish feasts. The other writers, the other gospel writers, don't do that. Jesus is first presented to the Jews at Passover in chapter 2, verse 13. Then in chapter 5, we see that the Son of God discourse comes as a result of his healing the man at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath, and it is an unnamed feast. Jesus then feeds the 5,000 and precipitates the bread of life discourse at the time of his second Passover. First Passover was in John 2. Second Passover mentioned is in John 5. And then eight months after that, in our present passage, Jesus is rejected by the national leaders at the Feast of Tabernacles. Then at the Feast of Dedication, which comes a couple of weeks after this, which is comparable to Hanukkah today, an attempt is made to stone him. This is in John 10, 31 and 39. And then this year will culminate. We're in the last year of the life of Christ. The last year began with the events in John 6. Now it's December. And then it, the, all these events will culminate at the final Passover, when Jesus is crucified, buried, and then resurrected. So this brings us to the doctrine of the feasts. The doctrine of the feasts. Now, Israel has a religious calendar that is divided into two sections. There are the spring feasts and the fall feasts. Now, all of these feasts are important and they're designed to communicate something different about God's plan in human history. Each feast reveals a different aspect of God's plan for Israel in a shadow form. The feasts do not relate to church age doctrine. They relate to God's plan and program for the nation Israel. And they were to tell certain things, each one represents certain things about The Messiah. The spring feasts and festivals foreshadowed events in the saving work of the Messiah at the first Advent. So the spring festival all relates to the first Advent and the fall festivals all relate to the second Advent. The thing to note is that these prophecies or types were fulfilled literally on the exact day of the feast as far as the spring festivals are concerned. We can only assume from that that the fall feasts will, that what the fall feasts represent will also be literally fulfilled, be literally fulfilled on the exact day of that feast. Now the spring feasts include Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a week long feast first fruits and Pentecost Pentecost is 50 days after Passover so roughly all of these events take place in a two month period from generally early to mid April down to early June and then there is a gap that gap represents the church age if you take the whole calendar of Israel and lay it out as a uh, as a timeline then these events take place in the in the spring and then there's a gap and then the fall festivals the fall festivals include the feast of trumpets the day of atonement and then the last in the biblical calendar is the feast of tabernacles So these represent the seven feasts. The Passover is the first one on the calendar. According to the religious calendar, the first month is the month of, according to the Babylonian terminology, the month of Nisan. It was also called Aviv in the Hebrew. This begins roughly about the middle of, Middle of March. It's on a lunar calendar, so it changes every year, so you can't draw an exact parallel to our calendar. Passover is the first day and the first of three annual pilgrimage feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles are called pilgrimage feasts because every Jewish male is expected to take a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. That tells us that. Jerusalem is going to be crowded at that time of the year with Jews from the Diaspora that are coming from all parts of the Roman Empire as well as Parthia, India, and various areas in North Africa. Passover is the first of these feasts, the first of the annual pilgrimage feasts. And you can find the scripture references in Exodus 23.17, Leviticus 23.4-8, and Deuteronomy the Passover commemorated the historical deliverance from Egypt and was celebrated on the 14th day of the month, on the 14th of Nisan. Christ was crucified on Passover Eve as they are preparing for the Passover which began at sundown. During that afternoon, they are slaughtering the Passover lamb. So Jesus Christ is slaughtered on, uh, not exactly on the day of Passover, but he fulfills the type perfectly and is slaughtered at the same time that the Passover lamb is slaughtered in preparation for the meal. So there's an exact fulfillment. Passover also, I mean, Passover foreshadowed redemption. The Old Testament ritual foreshadowed the redemption that would come about through Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The day after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread began. It's a seven-day feast. No work is done during that entire week. On the first day and the last day, sacrifices were to be offered. The Feast of Unleavened Bread portrayed the impeccability of the humanity of Jesus Christ in hypostatic union. For Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. So it portrays the impeccability of his humanity and also that he is the source of life. He is the source of life and he is our nourishment in the spiritual life. The prohibition of work during this week represents the faith rest drill in the believer's life. The faith rest drill is to characterize the believer's life after salvation as he is nourished on the bread of life. So man is, our relationship with God is not based on our works, but on His work. Now the first day of the week that came after the Sabbath, so whatever day Passover might fall on, whether it was a Tuesday, a Wednesday, or Thursday, there would be a Saturday, which is the Passover Sabbath, and then the first day of the week following that, which would be Sunday, was the Feast of first fruits. Firstfruits was dictated by the harvest. The first sheaf of barley was brought in from the fields. It was cut and waved before the Lord as a sign of divine blessing and a guarantee that the harvest would be bountiful. Remember, it's an agrarian society. This is found in Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. The Feast of Firstfruits, fruits were told in 1 Corinthians 15:20 pictures the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. So it's a picture of the resurrection. And just as that first sheaf of barley represents the the harvest that is to come, so Jesus' resurrection represents the harvest of souls that is to come. Fifty days following Passover... You come to Pentecost Penty means 50 it came to be called called Pentecost because of its uh, temporal relationship to Passover it's also called the Feast of weeks in Exodus 34:22 Exodus 34: 22 and Leviticus 23 15 to 22 this is the second annual pilgrimage feast celebrating the wheat harvest which is the arrival of Of God's provision. Now the harvest is in, God has provided for us for for the year. So, thus, Pentecost represents the fulfillment of God's promise of the Holy Spirit to Israel. You see, back in the Old Testament, in the New Covenant passages, God had promised the coming of the Holy Spirit who would indwell every believer. So, Pentecost represents that provision of God for the nation Israel. That's why this is mentioned in Joel 2 and why Peter goes to Joel 2 in his Pentecost sermon. And yet if you look at the passage in Joel 2, you'll see that none of the things that are portrayed there take place on Pentecost in Acts 2. The sun and moon are not darkened. None of the other cataclysmic things that take place in the heavens occur on the day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, the only thing that takes place on the day of Pentecost is that the disciples, and it's only the disciples, speak in tongues. And that is not even mentioned in the Joel 2 passage. What's happened? That's a very important question. Something went wrong. Why is it that the coming of the Holy Spirit is not as it was prophesied? because the nation Israel rejected the Messiah. So, the coming of the Holy Spirit as prophesied in Joel 2, which relates to the new covenant to Israel, is postponed. You see, in Joel 2, I want to make this very clear, Joel 2, as well as other Old Testament passages, Joel 2 prophesies certain things about The Holy Spirit and Israel in relationship to the New Covenant with Israel. And the New Covenant is only with Israel. We benefit because of our position in Jesus Christ. And because of its relationship to the third paragraph of the Abrahamic Covenant, that the Jews would be a blessing to all nations. And that's how we benefit from the New Covenant, so we can be ministers of the New Covenant. That is, carrying out the salvation blessings... To the whole world Joel 2 prophesies future coming of the Holy Spirit. when Jesus came and you have the first advent here represented by this arrow Jesus offered the kingdom but the kingdom was rejected we'll put an X here for rejection so that means that the, this is postponed. Jesus does not inaugurate the kingdom at all that is from a amillennial millennial, and even a progressive dispensational heresy. It does not inaugurate at all. We are not partially in the kingdom waiting for its eventual fulfillment. The kingdom is postponed until Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming and and establishes the uh, millennial kingdom. But the Holy Spirit does come in a unique way, and what exemplifies His coming is not the characteristics of Joel 2, but speaking in tongues. And why? Because tongues was a sign of judgment to Israel in the Old Testament. According to I, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.21-22, the purpose for tongues was stated in Isaiah 28.11. That Israel would hear the gospel in Gentile tongues and they would be evangelized by Gentiles. And that would be a sign of Announcing the coming judgment, divine judgment of the fifth cycle of discipline on Israel unless they accepted the Messiah. So Israel in a sense still had the opportunity during the early days of the church to to accept Jesus as Messiah. Their continued rejection solidified the program and instead of having the fulfillment of Old Testament promises we have the inauguration at Pentecost of the church age and there we have The unique ministry of the Holy Spirit in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit, all three of which are unique to the church age. And they will all be gone at the resurrection or rapture of the church at the end of this age. There is no indwelling of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period. That goes back to the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel, under uh, Daniel's 70th week and the Holy Spirit is, is removed He is called the Restrainer in First, First, Thessalon, excuse me, First Thessalonians chapter 2 and when the Restrainer is removed that's when the rapture takes place and the church is removed and the Tribulation then begins uh, uh, shortly thereafter Tribulation lasts for 7 years and then Jesus comes back at the end of that 7 year period and saves the human race from self-destruction at the Battle of Armageddon. The All unbelievers are removed from the earth in judgment. All believers who survive the tribulation go into the millennium in their regular mortal bodies. They repopulate the earth in perfect environment in the millennium. Now, the Pente- Pentecost then is the last of the spring f- festivals, and it's fulfilled literally on its in its proper time frame but the fall festivals are not fulfilled the feast of trumpets foreshadows the regathering of the nation Israel to the land at the end of the tribulation it has nothing to do with anything else in prophecy now every now and then you'll hear somebody say well the feast of trumpets represents the trumpet at the rapture and so the rapture is going to occur on that particular day Well, the Feast of Trumpets, if it represents the trumpet that's blown at the end of the Tribulation, just prior to the second advent, when the nation Israel is regathered. But since the Tribulation lasts specifically seven years, but the rapture does not begin the Tribulation, the Tribulation begins with the signing of the peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. That's what kicks off Daniel's 70th week. So there's a time gap. The rapture occurs here. This is the resurrection of the church. Then there's a transition period. Just as there's a transition period between the ascension of Christ, or the crucifixion of Christ, which is the fulfillment of the law, and then it's another 40 days before Jesus ascends, and then it's another 10 days before the church age begins. That's a, just a transitional period of about 50 days between the two dispensations. You have the same kind of transition that takes place between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, which is Daniel's 70th week. So the Feast of Trumpets has nothing to do with the rapture. And every now and then somebody comes along and they have some scheme for for date setting the rapture, and they'll say, well, this is the year and it's going to happen on September 21st or 28th or October 2nd or whenever the Feast of Trumpets happens to fall that year. So don't fall into that trap and get deceived by that. The rapture can occur at any time. Nothing has to happen in human history for the rapture to occur. Now, we know from the signs of the times in Matthew, uh, Matthew 14 a number of other places that a number of things have to take place for the second coming to, take, to happen. And when it starts looking like it's all ready for the second coming, then we can expect perhaps the rapture is not too far off. But don't fall into that trap. It's still, it's been imminent since the Apostle Paul's day. He thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. Many others have thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. And it may not happen for another thousand years, no matter how much we think it could happen this year or next year. Feast of Trumpets, the regathering of Israel, the Day of Atonement, represents the recognition by Israel, the acceptance by Israel of Jesus as the Messiah and represents the regeneration of the nation. Uh, The Day of Atonement is given, or let me back up a minute. Feast of Trumpets is described in Numbers 29.1 and Leviticus 23.23-25. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is mentioned in Leviticus 23:26 to 32. And then the final feast in the calendar is Tabernacles, Leviticus 23:33 to 44. Also in Exodus 23:16 and Exodus 34:22. Now this feast lasts 7 days. So right away we know that when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, He's going to be there for seven days during this festival. The first and last days are marked by sacrifices. Those are high holy days. they treat it as high Sabbaths. This is represented by the winter harvest that's gathered in. And the people go out and they build temporary shelters out of tree limbs and branches in front of their houses. And they go out and they live in those temporary booths. That's why it's also called the Feast of Booths. They live in those temporary shelters. Put a pup tent out front. Camp out for a week. And this is symbolic of the commencement of the millennium. Everyone in Israel does this. Rich, poor, no matter what their social circumstance is, whether they're a slave, whether they are a political leader or a religious leader. Everyone goes out and lives in the same kind of temporary hut, which shows that at the commencement of the millennium, everybody starts off the same. They have equal opportunity. And that is played out, the differences are played out determined by, determined by how each person utilizes their volition. So every Jew builds the same kind of hut out front, And it symbolizes how God is going to be the one who provides for them and God is the one who protects them in the millennial kingdom. So there are two themes in tabernacles. One is protection from the heat and protection from Israel's enemies and pressure in history. And now what we're going to see here in this passage is how the Apostle John takes the Feast of Tabernacles, and turns it around. He's going to show how just the opposite has happened. Instead of provision and protection, we're going to see how everyone in Israel is safe, except Yahweh incarnate, who cannot find safety in the abode of the Jew. Because by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we will see that his life is clearly threatened. So the first two verses of chapter 7 gives us the scenario, the setting, the time of the year. Verse 3, we see the response of his family. Now, this is a situation that I know many of you face. A family that is just excited about the fact that you're on doctrine. They, they, they can't wait to hear what you've learned on, on Sunday morning. And they're just so thrilled that, that you're not going to their uh, apostate church. Right? Right? Well, Jesus has been there before us. You know, you'll always hear some legalists saying that if you were really walking with the Lord, and that if you were really applying the word in your life, then your family would be saved. And that's just hogwash. Jesus was perfect and had a perfect witness before his family his entire life, and it wasn't until after the resurrection that any of them uh, trusted him as their Savior. At this point in time, they're not only unbelievers, but they're ridiculing him. And they are hostile to him. We don't know how many brothers and sisters he had. Tradition says seven or eight. So it's a large family. And they are clearly in rejection to him. Listen to how they respond to him in verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea. Why don't you go? We're tired of you hanging around the house. Now he's in the midst of all this rejection. The people have left him. The Pharisees are out to kill him. His disciples are leaving him. Only the twelve are left, and one of them is going to betray him. And naturally, in a setting of rejection, we would think that at least we're going to get a little aid and comfort from our family. Well, not the Lord. He's going to go home and try to have a little R&R, and they just ridicule him and give him a difficult time. Say, why don't you go on and go down to Judea, that your disciples can behold all these wonderful miracles. That you're doing. I mean, if you're doing all these wonderful things and you can perform all these miracles, why don't you go south and do it in front of everybody like all these other people who claim to be the Messiah? So, Jesus is facing the hostility of rejection and he's going to handle it in personal love, in impersonal love towards his brothers. I want you to notice that he doesn't give exactly what some would call a Christian response. He doesn't try to argue with them. He doesn't, doesn't try to show them the error of their ways. He doesn't try to point out all the signs and evidence that he's right. We'll get to that. Let's follow their argument. First of all, they tell him, Why don't you go on down to Judea and do your, do your miracles there? Verse 4, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you really want people to accept you as Messiah, you've got to get out there in front of everybody You've got to get everybody's attention. See, this is human viewpoint, Madison Avenue technique. Go out there and get everybody's attention. And if you do these things, show your, go ahead, show yourself to the world. And then John comments, for not even his brothers were believing. Imperfect tense. They were continually disbelieving in him. They were continually rejecting him. Notice Jesus' response in verse 6. Jesus therefore said to them, my time is not yet at hand. We'll notice again and again how Jesus is conscious of the Father's plan for his life and proper timing. Timing is everything. Now, Jesus doesn't try to argue with them or convince them, but he's not going to let them use and abuse him for their purposes either. He says, my time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. In other words, you always have the opportunity to shift from negative volition to positive volition. And then he says, he gets a real jab in in verse 7. He says, the world can't hate you. The world cannot hate you. Why doesn't the world hate them? Because the world's system is based on autonomy and independence and arrogance. And that's what they're doing. They're in autonomy. They're in independence and arrogance and rejection to him. And so the world is not in opposition to them. The world is right along with them. They're going right along with the world in antagonism to the Lord and Savior, the eternal God of the universe who is incarnate before them. And Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. It is antagonistic to me because my very presence reveals its shortcomings. I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus, by his very presence, is causing a, a conflict antagonism, and hostility in the world. And then Jesus says, Go on up to the feast yourselves, if you're so concerned about it. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Now Jesus knew that that God had a plan for his life, and that plan includes going to Jerusalem, but not on their agenda. See, this is the thing to point out. They have an agenda and so often you get in a family situation and you get a little conflict and they're hostile to you getting some doctrine and they want to set the agenda. They want to get involved in a fight. They want to argue with you, but don't, don't let them cause that because then they're in control. Jesus does not let his antagonistic family control the conversation or control his agenda. He's going to just relax. He's not going to talk to him. He's not going to throw, as he put it over in Matthew, he's not going to throw his pearls before swine. And that means there's a lot of wisdom in recognizing when you're dealing with somebody who's really negative. Don't antagonize and intensify the situation. It's not going to do any good but create further dissension. Just relax and live your life as under the Lord. And if need be, you just might have to, to not have anything at all to do with your family. One of the problems we have today among Christians is almost the deification of marriage and the deification of family. The last hour we reviewed the divine institutions. You have volition, individual responsibility. The second is marriage. The third is the family. The fourth is civil government. And the fifth is national identity. Now these are horizontal, they are created by God and instituted by God in human history for the protection, preservation, and perpetuation of the human race. God is the one who invented all of these. God is the inventor of marriage, family, civil government, and national identity. What we tend to do is we tend to come along and we say, okay, marriage is so important, we're going to elevate it up here, and we're going to make everything else serve, the, serve marriage, and we forget about God, and we just elevate marriage to a higher position, or we do it with family. We say we always have to respect the family. We always have to honor our parents. So all of a sudden, this becomes the overriding commandment. And see, God is the one behind it. So when any of these uh, institutions, marriage, family, government, national identity starts assuming the role of God in terms of authority then, and giving orders that contradict the revealed, the expressly revealed will of God, that is the only time that we are justified in violating those authority structures. And Jesus is sitting here and he's just not going to let the family control God's plan for his life. And I've seen this over and again in life where you see some parents that come along In terms of family, we'll just deal with family because that's the subject here. And I've seen parents who are so concerned. They love their kids a lot. They're very concerned about their welfare. They want to make sure that they're going to be financially secure in life. And so that kid comes along, young man comes along and says, You know, I think I have the gift of pastor teacher and I want to go in the ministry or I want to be a missionary or something like that. And parents, I've seen this happen several times. I know some kids today. There were kids that I had at camp 20 years or more ago. And these kids, are some of them are miserable today because they followed the authority of their parents and went off and got a good career and a good safety net and went to college. But their parents just would not allow them to go to Bible college or to go to seminary to go into the ministry and just put their foot down. In that case, a kid, if it, and you feel like that's God's will for your life, then you're justified in disobeying your parents. And too many parents have their eyes on temporal values, and they're so concerned about the security of that kid that they um, they they violate God's plan for their life. Now there are a couple of passages that we ought to look at in relation to this. One is in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 13:6 13, and following. This concerns loyalty to God. That's the context, and loyalty to God is juxtaposed here to all other categories of loyalty. Deuteronomy 13:6 we read, if your brother, your mother's son, that is your brother, your mother's son, or your son or your daughter or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other. In other words, this is somebody close to you, and they're enticing you spiritually to worship other gods, to get involved with false doctrine of one form or another. Verse 8, You shall not yield to him or listen to him, In other words, don't put your family at a higher priority level than your relationship with God. You shall not yield to Him or listen to Him, and your eyes shall not pity Him, nor shall you spare or conceal Him. But you shall, this is how serious it is, but you shall surely kill Him. The concept here is capital punishment. This was a capital crime under the theocracy of Israel. If somebody comes along and starts trying to entice you to worship another god, you were to go to the authorities and report them. It didn't matter if it was your brother, your mother, your son, what the family relationship was, how close the connection was. Your job under the Mosaic law was to go to the civil authority and report them in violation of this mandate and they were to be taken and tried in court and then executed. You shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him. You're going to take him out, and you're going to stone him, and you're going to be the first one to cast the stone. That that would sort of guarantee against any kind of false witness. You shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So, So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to seduce you from Yahweh your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God recognizes that it's very easy for us to be swayed by the peer pressure of the family. That they're going to try to wrongly influence us against positive volition. And God says, this is so important that I'm going to make it a capital crime under the theocracy of Israel. Now, the same idea is carried over into the New Testament. Loyalty to the Word of God is supposed to take priority over parents, family, government, everything else. In life, Matthew 10.35, Jesus said, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So often, parents want to control their kids, as I said, to give them security. But Jesus says, if you're positive, it's going to cause a division in the household. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Your enemy will be your brother or your sister or your parents because you want to follow the Lord and you want to follow truth and you understand the significance of doctrine and they don't. And because you have set your mind on eternal things and on spiritual truth and they haven't, you will have antagonism at the very core of your relationships. That means you're going to have to make a decision whether your family is more important to you or truth. Verse 37 of Matthew 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus is not stating these as conditions of salvation. But if you want to be a disciple and pursue spiritual maturity, Sooner or later you're going to face the test of priority just as Abraham did and you may have to leave father and mother and put all of that behind you so that you can go forward in the spiritual life. That's the test of priority. Whether the Word of God is more important to you than your family or your friends and then you're going to have to deal with the test of rejection and probably the test of being maligned and having the public lie spread about you. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me... See, the same thing happens with parents. They become so concerned about their kids that they lose their focus on spiritual priority. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take, his, take up his cross, that is, follow God's plan for his life, take up his cross and follow after me, is not worthy of me. Only in making doctrine the priority of our lives... Can we experience life as God intended it? That's the meaning of verse 39. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. So this tells us that as believers we have to deal with this priority issue, and even in the home where it's very hard sometimes to deal with this, we have to separate, or will be caused to separate, from Parents, brothers, sister, whoever it may be, because they are a distraction to our spiritual life. And that's one of the most important things you're going to learn as you advance spiritually is to deal with distractions. The more mature you get as a believer, the more you will discover there are many fun, enjoyable, and wonderful things to do in life that you can't do. Because they are distracting you from God's plan and purpose in your life. And that's a test. Each time we come to that, we realize that this is another test and we have to focus and there's just one more thing in life that I'm not going to do anymore because it distracts me from God's plan and purpose in my life. And at the beginning, that may involve your family. Now, Jesus deals with the test of His family here in John 7 and refuses to allow them to set the agenda for His life. And He does it courteously, but He doesn't cave in to their their plan or their agenda for him. And so the brothers go on up to the, go to the feast in Jerusalem in verse 10, but Jesus stays behind and then he goes into town somewhat secretly until the time to reveal himself in Jerusalem. And we'll look at that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your word and the things that we learn here, that there are always very important lessons for us. Lessons that help us to understand how you have worked in human history to bring about the plan of salvation. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for us. That he paid our penalty. That there is nothing more to be added to that. And that the issue in salvation is not our sins, not our failures. The issue is Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The scripture says, There is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so if there's anyone here this morning without hope and without faith and without eternal life, we pray that right now that they would make that decision, that the gospel would be made clear to them through the Holy Spirit, that they would understand that the issue is simple, simply accepting a free gift, the free gift of salvation. Father, we pray that as we go throughout this week that we would be reminded of the things that we have learned today, that we could contemplate them, meditate on them, and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us how to apply these things in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.